Chapter Two of Stephen Mitchell's Journey by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two on the Early Freight. On the morning in which Stephen Mitchell started on his journey into the great unknown world, Sarah Jane dashed about the kitchen doing the dishes and a score of other things besides. Her mind, meanwhile, on the green braid which she had resolved at any sacrifice to secure it won't cost but forty-five cents she had told her mother and there is a bad spot in the waist and another in the sleeve that it will just cover there is that money for the eggs you said i could have it you know to buy something i needed and i need this worse than anything i can mend up my stockings and make them do and i feel somehow as though i had got to have it well i would the mother had answered in her patient motherly voice the land knows you don't have very much and if you would rather have green braid than new stockings why i say have it though to my mind the dress looks nice enough now you have got it fixed over to wear to a party without any braid on it no matter if it did sarah jane's heart had gone out after green braid she had walked one morning four miles to farmer bascom's place and back again for the sake of getting the information she needed and a scrap of the braid for steve to match it was really an event in her life to be looking forward to the possession of something quite new she could not keep her thoughts away from it as she made swift progress with the work i do hope steve won't be late to-night she said it worries father so dreadfully to have him late getting home i wonder what he thinks could happen to him between here and the village to be sure steve has never gone as long a trip as this before and i can see father is dreadfully worried about it but it isn't likely anything will happen oh no said mrs mitchell soothingly the family did not realize it but she was the one who had to speak most of the soothing words there is nothing for father to worry about he mustn't expect steve home early it is a real long trip and uphill a good part of the way and then there is no telling how long he may have to wait father told him you know on no account to let anybody but that mr baker have the things and of course he might not be around when steve gets there oh he will get along all right there is no cause to worry about steve we ought to be dreadful thankful for that sarah jane just suppose he was one of them boys who would stop at the saloon and drink up all the money he got for the garden truck and then not know enough to come home at all that lucas boy was reeling from side to side when he went by a little while ago just to think if you was his sister sarah jane oh my land said sarah jane i wouldn't want to be his sister not if he sat up straight instead of reeling around of all the loafering ugly lopsided fellows i ever saw jake lucas beats i wonder if steve will bring my braid do you suppose he will i guess so child he doesn't like to go to the store a mite he grumbles a good deal but steve is accommodating for all that he wouldn't want to disappoint you not if he understood how much you wanted it and i guess he does i hope it will be the right kind and won't cost more than you think it will 
Mr. Mitchell's prophecy in regard to the morning came to pass. It was very warm. Stephen shielded himself from the August sun as well as he could, and let the tired old horses take their own gait up and down the long stony hills. The Mitchell horses were always tired, and never in a hurry. Stephen, as a general thing, had no difficulty in putting himself upon their level so far as haste was concerned. What is the use of hurrying? If he had had a motto by which to live, perhaps that might have been it. Nothing that Stephen Mitchell had found in life thus far had seemed to him worth hurrying for. He was tall for his years. He was ungainly in form and uncouth in manners. His clothes were not only old-fashioned, but much worn and badly patched. Not that his mother did not understand patching, and not that she did not work patiently to do it neatly, but the quality of the patches have a great deal to do with their appearance when the work is done, and Mrs. Mitchell's resources, even in this respect, were so meagre that she sometimes produced startling effects. On the day in question, Stephen had done what he could to make himself respectable, with indifferent success. It had been much too warm to think of wearing other than his linen coat, which was short-waisted and short-sleeved, and much faded by many washings. Moreover, it was ornamented with long, zigzag streaks of grass stains. His trousers were of the coarsest grey cloth, and had a patch of bright new grey set in a very conspicuous place. They were carefully turned up at the bottom, not because they were too long, but because they were badly frayed. And Stephen, considering it with more thought than he generally gave to dress, had decided that the least disreputable arrangement was to have them turned up as if he were afraid of soiling them. He wore a loose grey shirt with a turned-down collar made of the same material, and no necktie whatever. In this attire, seated on the board which was laid across the farm wagon for a seat, and accompanied by potatoes, cabbages, onions, apples, beets, and indeed a little of everything which grows in an ordinary farm garden, he was making his laborious way, whistling the while to pass the time, not only to the village, which lay eight miles away, but nearly four miles farther than that to the summer encampment ground. Stephen Mitchell was very much the sort of boy that his father was in the habit of describing to his mother on the twilight evenings before mentioned. Nearly nineteen, freckled, blue-eyed, rough and ungainly in every way, inclined to be gruff in manner, sometimes surly, perhaps almost sullen, yet never loud-voiced or coarse. A little out of sorts with life in general, but utterly at a loss to know how he would have life differently arranged, hating ploughing and hoeing with all his might, yet by no means sure of anything else which he would like to do instead. He sneered at the clerk in the dry-goods store, and declared repeatedly that he would rather hoe turnips for a living till he was a hundred and one, than to stand behind that counter with white fingers and long nails, and measure tape and ribbon for giggling girls. He did not want to stay at home, and yet he could not be said to want to go away. Where should he go? Moreover, he gruffly told himself it wouldn't do no good to go anywhere. 
he would have to stay on father's account he was almost literally without education the one entire winter which he had been enabled to spend in school having been simply wasted he knew how to read and after a manner to write though he had ideas on orthography peculiar to himself he knew a little about figures enough to calculate with a good degree of certainty in regard to the garden truck which he sold from time to time though very little of this part of the work had fallen to stephen's lot mr mitchell having a thorough distrust of his son's business abilities generally transacted sales and made change himself but on the few occasions when stephen had been allowed to do so he had kept his accounts square and though the father saw him depart on this particular morning with great misgivings and gave many admonitions as to the price of the different articles and the amount of money which they ought to bring stephen had no anxieties in that direction he had made a memoranda of his entire load and calculated the probable price and was satisfied that nobody would cheat him therefore he could have given his mind to other thoughts if he had anything to think about a more desolate life than that which stephen mitchell lived it would seem hard to imagine as to the stony farm over which he struggled a great deal of the time alone for the poor father had often days when he could not drag his stiffened limbs about there was not a corner in it for which stephen did not have a fairly defined dislike yet day after day with something like patience he puttered away at his distasteful work and at night lumbered home tired out to sit drearily through the short evenings and to get to bed almost with the chickens from sheer weariness of sitting still and doing nothing yet there was nothing which he wanted to do a problem to a looker-on interested in human nature would stephen mitchell have been to the surface looker-on he would have appeared like nothing so much as a lump of animated clay rolling awkwardly around doing the work which a machine might have accomplished could it have been set in motion in those directions doing as little thinking apparently as the animals he drove so much nay even that would have seemed a libel upon doll and dobbin who had ideas of their own and tried stubbornly at times to carry them out for that matter so had stephen the difference between him and them being that he knew better than to try to carry his out but the great difficulty in the whole matter was that no student of human nature came along eager to study stephen mitchell or to help him be other than the clod he was his one teacher during the winter referred to he distinctly remembered as one whom he had both despised and hated therefore of course whatever influence he had upon him was for the worse and his father's troubles growing thicker and heavier upon him at about that time that one teacher had been the last so far as stephen was concerned he had no intimacies with boys and girls of his own age he lived a perfectly isolated life on the rare occasions growing rarer with every passing week when they drove eight miles to the church in the village stephen stayed at home if he could his father thought because he was too indolent to make the necessary effort to get himself ready to go 
His mother feared it was because he had no interest in such things. She, poor mother, though a Christian at heart, was a very timid, unspoken one, and knew not how to help her boy to have any such desires, knew not even how to speak to her wide-awake, energetic daughter, and neither son nor daughter knew how often the pathetic little sigh which she gave so much was because of their manifest indifference to church and Sunday, or any such thing. Not one of the family knew that Stephen's real reason for absenting himself from church was because he recognized the infinite difference between himself and most of the other farmers' boys who would be together there. It was not so much the matter of dress, though to even Stephen Mitchell that was important, but there was a free and easy way about the other boys. They shook hands with one another and made gay little speeches. They made dashing remarks to the girls, over which the girls laughed as though they were funny. They seemed to feel perfectly at home in one another's society, and to have plans to consider and amusements to arrange. At all these ways Stephen Mitchell looked with amazement. How could a boy stand before a girl, all prinked out in finery, and say, It's a pretty day, or give her a rose, maybe, or a pink, as he had often seen boys no older than himself do, do it without stammering or blushing, or feeling as if he had seven pairs of hands instead of one, and as though his feet were a yard long and as heavy as logs. Stephen Mitchell did not understand it, did not understand himself, and got rid of his puzzling thoughts by resolving to put them aside with his unanswerable, What's the use? There was within him a determination to hold himself aloof from church people, and from the few families who could be called neighbors. He met all Sarah Jane's suggestions in these directions with a shrug of his ungainly shoulders and an indescribable grunt, which she knew must be translated in the negative. It was a boy of this stamp who paid his quarter at the gate of the great encampment ground, and drove his tired horses slowly in, staring about him on every side. He was filled with bewilderment, not to say dismay, over the unusual sights and sounds which presented themselves. A summer encampment, holding its sessions first for four weeks, gradually lengthening its time from summer to summer, until now it was nearer ten weeks than four, had been in progress for years within twelve miles of his home. Yet Stephen Mitchell looked upon the grounds this August day for the first time in his life. His father had, of late years, made pilgrimages to the place, sometimes as often as once in two or three weeks, carrying with him a load of what he called garden truck, as much as he could get ready from his worn-out and ill-tilled land because he had discovered that here was a ready sale at fair prices for anything fresh which he could bring. But so unaccustomed was he to trusting any responsibility to Stephen, that it had not even entered his mind to send the boy in his stead, although the long, slow ride was irksome to him. But for the sudden attack of rheumatism, which a few unusually rainy days had developed, the paradise which suddenly opened before Stephen would still have been unknown land to him. His father was a man of few words, 
and had never taken the trouble to describe to his family the wonders of those grounds. Perhaps he could not have described him if he had tried. But perhaps he would have tried, had he imagined that either Stephen or Sarah Jane would feel any interest in such a story. Very slowly the horses walked up the broad avenue. They were entirely willing to walk slowly at all times, and they found the smooth road and the lovely shade from the giant trees, whose branches locked overhead, delightful to them. But for a warning cluck from Stephen's tongue, they would have stopped altogether. It was with some difficulty, and with much blushing, that Stephen succeeded in asking questions sufficient to direct him to the hotel, after the Mr. Baker whom he sought. It was so astonishing to be driving through what he thought would be woods, and find it a city, with broad avenues and parks and fountains, and many cottages gay with flowers, the piazzas bright with groups of young people, and the streets alive with men and women and children hurrying to and fro. Not that he realized that it was in the least like a city, not that he knew parks and avenues and fountains and grottoes by sight. Stephen Mitchell was as far from his home this morning as he had ever been. No knowledge of the hum and whirl of life had penetrated the stony hillside farm where he had been reared, so that you will find it very difficult to understand what a strange sensation the surroundings gave him. Had he been familiar with the Bible and the story of Eden, I think the grounds through which he was passing might have suggested to him that faraway, bright garden, which faded from human sight so many years ago. Nay, had he been familiar with the Revelation, and the language of the seer of Patmos, I do not know but the golden city of the New Jerusalem might almost have seemed to him to have taken shape for earthly eyes. But he knew neither of those pictures sufficiently well to have them in mind and at first was simply dazed, even panic-stricken. His first desire was to get away. There were so many people. What an army of young men! Hundreds of them, it seemed to him, fully as well-dressed as the detested clerk behind the counter of the one store in the village. And the girls, hosts of girls, those creatures who had been the terror of his bashful boyhood he felt himself ill-treated, deceived. Why had not his father told him what he would have to endure? He looked down at his patched knees and his turned-up trousers, and blushed a deeper red than even the August sun had succeeded in producing. He was sorely tempted to turn his horses then and there, and go back to town, dispose of his potatoes and cabbage for what he could get at the village store, and make all speed homeward, his mind in its first stage of actual rebellion against his father's authority. His second mood was calmer. What's the use? he asked himself, resorting to his one philosophical sentence. There ain't a fellow here who ever saw me before, or will ever see me again. As for the girls, what do I care? Let them laugh if they want to. Laughing won't kill me. If it would, I would have been dead long ago. I have seen Fanny Bascom snicker right out in church when I came in. I'll just go right on and find that Mr. Baker and get rid of my load and get out. 
and I'll act as though I didn't care a red cent for none of them. End of chapter 2